United States military eliminated the world's top terrorist by removing Soleimani. We have sent a powerful message to terrorists. If you value your own life, you will not threaten the lives of our people. When we did not start this process of escalation, the United States waged an economic war against Iran. The United States has to come to its senses. The United States has killed Iran's Qasem Soleimani, sparking the most serious situation in the Middle East since ISIS took over huge swathes of Iraq in 2014. The late head of Iran's Revolutionary Guards Quds Force has spent decades building up Tehran's army of proxy militias and allies from Beirut to Sana'a. The response from Tehran came just four days later when they fired 22 rockets at US troop locations on Iraqi bases. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're looking at how Iran and the US got here. Will they escalate further, or is that it? The latest escalation between America and Iran comes on the back of 18 months of steadily rising tensions between the pair that's threatened the stability of the entire region. In May 2018, US President Donald Trump withdrew from the nuclear deal, signed with world powers in 2015, to limit Iran's enrichment of uranium and prevent them from building a nuclear missile. The international community agreed to withdraw sanctions from Iran in exchange for strict monitoring of enrichment and limits on how much enriched uranium Tehran could hold at any one time. The 2015 signing was hailed as a success for diplomacy ending decades of isolation for Iran and bringing it into the international community. But Trump branded the deal horrible and one-sided, saying it didn't bring calm, didn't bring peace, and never would. He wasn't alone. Many have criticised the deal for giving Iran access to billions in oil revenue. But, they point out, it didn't address the kind of regional meddling that Soleimani spearheaded or the country's advanced ballistic missile programme. Since the withdrawal, the situation in the Middle East has been fragile. Washington has sanctioned dozens of Iranian officials, entities and companies as part of what it calls a maximum pressure campaign. The move has slashed Iranian oil exports, a vital economic lifeline to Tehran that it's branded a form of economic warfare. In response, we've seen strikes on oil tankers in the Arabian Gulf and an attack on Saudi Aramco oil production facilities that knocked out nearly 50% of the kingdom's crude oil production. There were also dozens of rocket attacks on US troops in Iraq and the diplomatic green zone in Baghdad. One such attack killed US defence contractor Nowruz Hamid, sparking the latest escalation. But the killing of Soleimani and Iran's response is different. Soleimani has worked for decades to build up Iran's web of Shiite militias, like Lebanon's Hezbollah. He worked largely from the shadows, pulling the strings of armed groups across the region. His role gave him an almost rock star status among the militiamen he oversaw. Qasem Soleimani has selfies with fighters in Aleppo, on the streets of southern Iraq, and along the borders with Israel in Lebanon. Soleimani built up and ran many of the Shiite insurgent groups who fought US troops after the 2003 invasion of Iraq. He's blamed in Washington for hundreds of American deaths. Over the years, uh, Iran has established a strong relationship with uh, a number of uh, non-state groups in uh, different countries uh, with a focus mainly uh, in uh, Iraq, uh, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan to some extent, uh, Yemen. I mean, we can talk about this special relationship or specific relationship that Iran had in all of these countries. 
but the overall goal was to have some sort of non-conventional capability that would allow Iran to um, maintain a strong relationship, but also to defend itself should it need to do so. That's Dr. Anisha Tabrizi, a researcher in Iran's foreign and domestic politics at the Royal United Service Institute in London. The loss of Soleimani has hit Iran hard. The country's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, openly wept while he prayed over Soleimani's coffin. Tens of thousands of Iranians turned out for mass funerals as he was hailed as a martyr of the Islamic Revolution. But away from the ceremony, his demise poses a huge problem for Iran in maintaining its network of militias. Few other Iranian officials have the status or ruthless reputation that Soleimani did. Here's Ahmed Qureshi, a researcher focused on Iran. Soleimani is one of those people who come in a generation, like one in a generation, uh, really adept at uh, covert warfare, really very good at creating militias. I mean, the amount of militias that this guy created. I mean, we used to read, you know, these novels about, you know, how intelligence agencies operate. And while the CIA maybe has created so many uh, proxies in Latin America back in the Cold War against the Soviet Union and so forth and during the Afghan war. But, but, but really, honestly, nobody has done sort of work that Soleimani has done. This guy is the, what, he's the Tom Cruise of the militia work. This week, we're joined by Mina Al-Arabi, the Nationals' editor-in-chief. Mina, can you tell us a bit more about the JCPOA, or the 2015 nuclear deal, that kick-started all of this? You know, I'm a student of history, which is really annoying as a journalist, because I go back way further back than 2018. The nuclear deal has gotten a lot of attention, especially in European circles where the Europeans were very proud to have concluded this deal, to have started this deal and concluded it with um, President Obama and, of course, the Russians and the Chinese being on board. The nuclear deal addressed only a small portion of what Iran was up to in the region. And so, frankly, while, yes, uh, Donald Trump's decision to withdraw from the nuclear deal was an important milestone in this uh, in this saga, let's say. It really doesn't address the fact that the Iranians have been more and more emboldened in the region. I use the term emboldened because they truly were. You had Iranian proxies doing as they please inside of Iraq, inside of Syria. You had the Houthi rebels in Yemen. And of course, you had Hezbollah in Lebanon getting more and more emboldened, but also being a huge part of the war effort that the Iranians helped with Bashar al-Assad staying in power in Syria. And that all predates the decision on the nuclear deal. Qasem Soleimani as a figure was really the embodiment of that Iranian strategy of controlling where they could in the region. You had Iranian officials saying, we now control Baghdad, Damascus, Sana'a, and Beirut, the four Arab capitals where their proxies were able to get into a political system, rightly or wrongly, and really call the shots. And so I would say for people who want to understand the context of this, not to get too hung up on the nuclear deal and really see the escalation more as the Iranians saying, 
we run the show. I would say if you want to understand what was happening, you'd have to look back at the Quds forces strengthening, uh, the developments inside of Iraq politically from 2011. The war against ISIS was really an opportunity for Iran to say, we are now allies of the West. You know, you've had this thing of Qasem Soleimani and uh, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, who's, of course, the other uh, big militia figure from Iraq who was killed in the American strike earlier, coming out and saying, we are on the ground, pushing our militias forward into certain cities and towns in Iraq and Syria where they were not welcome under the air cover of the U.S. and coalition forces. What's Iran's end goal in this? Why is it spent, you know, decades with people like Qasem Soleimani building up proxies, building up allies across the region that they can then influence and control. What's the reason that they've put so much time and energy into this? There are multiple reasons. So one is based on ideology. The Iranian regime believes in the exporting of the revolution, which is what they call their basically political movement. I mean, it uses a sectarian or religious guise, but at the end of the day, it is a political movement. And so since 1979, very publicly, the Iranian regime believes in exporting the revolution and pushing forward its doctrine in these different countries. In addition to that, they believe, some elements of them believe that they need to always be on the offensive before they become on the defense. And so after 2003, after the Iraq war, many Iranian military figures believed that if the Americans succeeded in Iraq and didn't lose too many soldiers or didn't really get embroiled in there, the next target was Iran. Whether it was or not is, again, speculation. But that's what they believed. And so they said, as long as we keep the Americans bogged down in Iraq, but also we make sure our proxies are keeping everybody busy, keep them at bay, they won't, nobody will come and attack us directly. So it's an offensive measure for defensive purposes in their reading. There's another element to this, which is about money and about power and expansionism. Now, some people wrongly use the term Iranian influence. This is not about influence. Influence you can do through culture, through ties. There are very natural uh, influences for Iran in Iraq and other countries because of shared history. This is about being able to call the shots, expansionist uh, endeavors, making money. Let's not forget that Iran has been under huge sanctions. And if it wasn't for primarily Iraq, but other countries, they would not have been able to survive. This regime would not have been able to survive in the way it has. In the last, you know, 12 months, we've seen numerous rounds of attacks on tankers, followed by heightened tensions, followed by a period of calm. We've seen the attacks on Aramco, oil production facilities in Saudi Arabia, and then this period of calm that followed it. Now, obviously, the latest um, escalation. How do we break that? A lot of diplomats are calling for dialogue, for kind of uh, mediation. Is that possible, given, you know, what you were just saying about the role of, of Iran in the region? Is it possible to make a deal if we sit down at a table? You would hope that politics is the art of the possible, and you would hope that there was the possibility of a deal. What worries some people is this idea, and I'm amongst those people, is this idea of a grand bargain. That if we sit, we put all the chips on the table, and some sort of bargain is struck. What happens is often the countries 
of the region are absent from that, and I mean the Arab countries. It's very hard to believe that if the U.S. and the Iranians sit at a table and say, okay, well, what's your interest in Iraq? I'm going to give you this. You give me that. What's your interest in Syria and so forth? Who loses out? The Iraqis and the Syrians. And the biggest problem about these militias and these proxies is violating the sovereignty of these countries, of being able to make their own decisions. And it's been fascinating that this killing of Qasem Soleimani and this ramping of tensions comes after several months of protests inside of Lebanon and Iraq. From October, both in Lebanon and Iraq, people were going against the political systems that were weak, that were corrupted, that didn't have a real sense of sovereign decision-making, and were calling for a stronger state, better governance, better institutions. And that's not to say that the Iranian proxies or Iranian militias are the only problem, but were a big part of that kind of system that enabled this nefarious Iranian presence, but also enabled countries like the U.S. to, you know, call the shots or uh, influence how the politics of the countries would get agreed upon. This kind of grand bargain or the idea of coming up with a grand strategy will mean the stifling of any sort of agency for the other countries involved. And on those protest movements, we've seen huge numbers of largely Shia from the south of Iraq taking to the streets, demanding that change. For Iran, that's seen as a massive issue, right? Absolutely. The voices of Iraqis who are from the predominantly Shia south really riled up the Iranians. The idea that they believe this system did not deliver to them, that Shia Islamist parties that are publicly aligned with Iran failed them, scared Tehran. Because what the Iranians have always tried to push out is that we are the natural protectors of Arab Shia, despite the fact that most Shia Arabs will say, well, we have a multitude of identities. We're Shia, we're Arabs, we could be secular, we could be religious, whatever it is, you know, their professional identity could take forward. And yet the Iranians insisted that they were the ones that could pr- provide them protection and could provide them good governance. The Iraqi political system, at least in the last decade, has been dominated by Iranian-backed Islamist Shia parties, and they failed their people. And then obviously within this, you saw... Qasem Soleimani dispatched by Tehran to Baghdad to oversee quite a brutal crackdown, especially in some of the southern towns. Absolutely. You had Qasem Soleimani go and attend a security meeting of all the key security figures of Iraq. They had come together expecting the Iraqi prime minister to turn up. In his place came Qasem Soleimani to give them directives. Over 500 Iraqi protesters have been killed and thousands wounded only from October. Peaceful Iraqi protesters. The irony, of course, is that these protesters had initially tried to go to the green zone, which houses not only the American embassy, but houses um, the centers of power of Iraq, whether it's the parliament or the president or prime minister's headquarters. When the protesters tried to go to the green zone, they were met with sheer brutality. And only a few weeks later, the Iranian-backed militia groups, Hezbollah and others, decide to descend upon the U.S. embassy. And lo and behold, they could get to the very compound, penetrate the compound with zero reaction from Iraqi armed groups. 
add to it the graffiti on the walls of the American embassy. And again, this was only New Year's Eve. It feels like a long time away. Only New Year's Eve, the 31st of December 2019. You had graffiti on the walls of the American embassy compound saying, Suleimani is my leader. Suleimani Qaidi. And so there was no ambiguity about who called for this attack on the U.S. embassy. And it was a stark reminder that the Iraqi government and its forces were either completely incompetent, couldn't stop these guys, or was completely appeasing them and accepting what they were doing. And that also highlights one of the kind of most worrying features, I think, for Iraq, is that, of course, then when the U.S. secured the compound, additional troops, etc., one of the main Iraqi forces that came to protect the embassy was the U.S.-backed counter-terror forces. And it also highlights why so many of the protesters are equally saying we don't want Iranian or American influence here. The difference, of course, between the Iranians and the Americans is that the counterterrorism forces that you reference are actually forces that wear regular Iraqi uniform. They will take commands from an Iraqi general. The Iranian-backed militias will take their commands from Tehran, from Qasem Soleimani, and now, of course, his successor. And that's the difference between the two. The U.S. has worked within the political system, rightly or wrongly. The Iranians have worked within the political system, but ensured that they had a shadow enterprise there to do their bidding if the official channels failed. And so where does this leave the protesters? The protesters are in a very difficult situation. The Iranian-backed militias have used the events of the first week of January to attack them. We've had attacks in Nasriya, we've had attacks in Basra, where as media headlines and cameras have gone away from this, as attention has gone away from the protesters, these militias have been emboldened and basically attacked them. On the second side, they the protesters were very concerned about appearing to be pro-American because while they are, for example, many of them are against U.S. troop uh, withdrawal from Iraq for fear that the Iranians fill the vacuum, they also don't want to be seen as pro-American. So they had to be quiet for a moment as this tension flared up. The other element that's of concern, of course, to the protesters is that now the political infighting that's going on in Baghdad has almost disregarded their concerns. You have Adil Abdel Mahdi, who is a caretaker prime minister, who announced his resignation weeks ago and yet now is calling the shots. And he clearly is angling to stay as prime minister. He's now wanting to uh, repurpose his resignation to be like, well, now we're in a new era and I'm going to be staying. And so their demands are completely being ignored. It will take a lot of courage and a lot of strategic thinking for them to reinvigorate their movement. But they're still very present on the ground. What do you see as the impact on the militias in Iraq, this plethora of popular mobilization forces or Hashashabi, now that Soleimani, the kind of liaison, their sort of commander, as it were, from Tehran, is gone? Soleimani was like the godfather of these proxies. He's been around for a decade. Some of them fought alongside him against the Iraqi army in the Iraqi-Iranian war, including Hadid Amri and others. And so he was the guy who knew how to play them off each other. In addition to that, they've all been jostling and competing with each other for who calls the shots inside of Baghdad. And some of them want to have a different relationship with Tehran. Some want to be they're the tools of Tehran and see themselves as implementing whatever Tehran tells them. Others 
they see themselves as independent agents, as independent actors inside of Iraq with a very strong alliance, let's say, to Iran. And so they're going to be competing within each other. Muqtada Sadr has said, it's enough retaliation, we now need to de-escalate. On the flip side, you've had Qais al-Khazali, who really is uh, one of the most brutal uh, elements inside of Iraq, who said, we still need to retaliate. And so there's already public... Uh, friction, but behind the scenes, it's even greater. The fear is that these, sadly, all men uh, are going to compete and they have incredible amounts of weapons. They have followers, young men who are largely unemployed. And the fear is that they get galvanized into some sort of internal strife inside of Iraq as each one tries to call the shots. There's a lot of talk that since the airstrike on the third that killed Qasem Soleimani, we've entered a kind of new era for the region. Do you think that's true? Do you think we've woken up to this completely different regional situation? It's a new era for Iran in the sense that one of the most significant strategists, one of the closest people to Khamenei is gone. So it is a new era for Iran. In terms of the wider regional divisions, the competing interests that are at play, it's still very much the same sorts of interests. It would have been a new era if there was a hot war um, where you saw a direct confrontation. If the Iranians, for example, had retaliated and killed, God forbid, you know, 15 American troops and 100 Iraqi uh, soldiers, it would have changed the dynamic. We haven't seen that. If, for example, Hezbollah decided to retaliate and struck Israel, then then it's a different type of war. At the moment, it feels like it's the next round of this ongoing uh, fight in the region for influence, for resources, for calling the shots inside Arab countries. If the Iraqi political class decides to go ahead and push American and foreign troops outside of Iraq, that would also be a new era. And it would absolutely solidify Iran's control inside of Baghdad. I don't think we're going there. So how do we break that cycle of, of escalation, of jockeying for influence and power? The only way is to strengthen the Arab countries where these battles are being fought. So you have to strengthen Iraq, you have to strengthen Lebanon, you have to strengthen Yemen, you have to strengthen Syria, you have to have political systems that work, institutions that work, armed forces that do have the monopoly over the use of arms. It's a long, difficult journey, but it's the only one that can end for good this sort of ongoing battle. Another important element is, of course, refusing this idea of a grand bargain between the U.S. and Iran, where these other countries are subjected to whatever deal is is agreed to. What do you see as Donald Trump's view now? I mean, he came out on uh, January 8th and gave his kind of response to the Iranian strikes. That involved mentions of NATO taking a more uh, prominent role. It talked about economic sanctions continuing. It talked about the need for China, Russia and European states to move away from the 2015 deal and accept that that's not you know, viable anymore. What does that actually mean? As Donald Trump takes stock of what happened in the first week of January, he can say with comfort that he took out one of the most important pillars of Iran's regional strategy with so far 
not that high a cost. He must be thinking that as the world condemns any sort of escalation, the world who doesn't want to see Iranian proxies also is breathing a little easier now that that imminent threat of immediate uh, confrontation happens. But I would hope that those around Donald Trump are also explaining to him that the Iranians always take the long view. So even if this round is over, this war and battle is definitely not over. And so hopefully Donald Trump should be thinking about which allies within these Arab countries, especially in Iraq, the hope is that the Americans will support their allies, especially that there are MPs that took genuine risk by not turning up to the parliamentary session that demanded for the kicking out of U.S. troops, for want of a better word. You know, MPs, over 160 of them, I believe, didn't turn up to the vote that was calling for the expulsion despite of despite actual threats. Yeah. I mean, this is not their addresses exactly. will be published, etc. And and they took that they took that threat. And so so now the Americans have to show political support for those people who are brave enough to do that. That requires support and backing only from the US, but the international community, because they really have taken a risk in publicly facing off with Iran. With a diplomatic agreement unlikely to resolve the tensions between America and Iran, and with flare-ups becoming increasingly regular, it's likely they were only in a brief lull before the next round of clashes. This leaves the Middle East in a precarious position. Thanks this week to Dr. Anisha Tabrizi, Ahmed Qureshi, and Mina Al-Arabi. We were produced by Taylor Heyman, Aisha Khan, and Arthur Edison. If you want all the latest episodes of Beyond the Headlines, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app, and please leave us a review. <laughs>